You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 6th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next half hour, all disputes are put to one side as Turkey and Syria call for help to deal with two major earthquakes. 1,400 people are now known to have died, will be in Istanbul for the latest. Also ahead, the latest from Washington as the US tries to recover the remains of a giant Chinese balloon. In light of China's unacceptable action, I am postponing my planned travel this weekend to China. We'll examine change at the top in Ukraine's defence ministry and find out why Denmark wants to give fewer public holidays to its citizens. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. An earthquake of magnitude 7.8 is rare enough and devastating enough in itself. But what made this morning's tremor in Turkey and Syria even more deadly was that it was shallow, at around 10 miles under the Earth's surface. Moreover, it happened near to where thousands of people live. More than 1,400 people already have known to have died. And in the last couple of hours, a second 7.5 magnitude earthquake has hit central Turkey. Well, to get the latest, I'm joined by Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. She joins us on the line from Istanbul. Uh, Welcome back, Hannah. Thank you. Um, We can wonder, doesn't really know where to start. Could you just bring us up to date with this latest earthquake, please? Yeah, so this was a second earthquake, again, really high magnitude, 7.6, 7.7, that hit in almost exactly the same area. Now, since this first big earthquake this morning at just after 4 a.m., there have been a number of really powerful aftershocks. And uh, the authorities are advising people who've left their houses not to go back in for the moment. I spoke with somebody down in Gaziantep this morning, and he said that he and his wife kind of jumped out of bed, uh, went straight out of their house, went to a hospital nearby and have been sheltering in there. And he said also the power is out, the electricity is out. It sounds like really, really difficult conditions already in these places, even before this second quake struck uh, an hour and a half ago. Indeed. What kind of what kind of place are we talking about here? Because what seems to have been the case is because the earthquake was the first earthquake, at least was so shallow, only 10 miles down, that makes it even more deadly. But if you have something on the surface which isn't terribly stable, such as a, a, a not very securely built home, then your the, the repercussions are, are, are as you would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the area of southern Turkey. It's close to the Syrian border. Um, and it is quite a developed area. There are a number of big cities there, including Gaziantep and Shanla Urfa, two of the places that have been very badly affected. They are developed places. The infrastructure is good. The problem is with the kind of smaller buildings, the apartment blocks. What we've seen after previous earthquakes in Turkey, not on the scale of this one, is that buildings have collapsed and then when there's been investigations afterwards, it's turned out that either they weren't built to earthquake standards to begin with 
all those buildings have under, uh, undergone some kind of restoration or renovation, which has basically cancelled out earthquake uh, prevention, uh, uh, earthquake standards in them. Um, so I'm sure, you know, once the kind of initial phase of this rescue operation starts to wind up, those are the questions that are going to be asked. But yeah, another kind of feature of this area, it is an area with a lot of big cities. It's also an area that's hosting a huge amount of Syrian refugees for obvious reasons. They come from just over the border in Aleppo and Idlib. Um, now, some of those on both sides of the borders are living in camps, either container camps on the Turkish side, tent camps on the Syrian side, already, you know, a huge humanitarian crisis. You know, every winter for the past 12 years, uh, we've been facing a humanitarian crisis in those areas. Um, but also other Syrians living basically in the kind of cheapest and most dilapidated uh, places. So they're far more likely to be living you know, in, in places that aren't up to earthquake standards. And this is clearly something that is too much for Turkey to handle by itself. Yeah, absolutely. So Turkey pretty quickly um, declared a, a level four emergency, which means that uh, it will be asking for international help. Japanese rescue teams are expected to arrive here first thing tomorrow. 65 countries and all have offered help. And this isn't unusual at all. You know, usually when these kind of huge things happen, even the neighbours that uh, that Turkey maybe doesn't have the best relations with usually rally around. We saw that in 1999 when there was an earthquake here. At that time, Greece and Turkey, you know, as they were as they are today, were you know, really not in a good state in their relationship. But Greek, Greece very quickly rushed in with help, and I think we can expect to see something similar here. Indeed, we understand that Russia is sending two aircraft and rescue teams. Azerbaijan is sending a team. The EU is sending an aid. This is a moment where everybody puts differences aside. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, everyone understands that these are natural disasters. You know, clearly, we all know that Turkey lies in an earthquake zone. We all know that there is this risk here. But still to see the kind of pictures that are coming out of southern Turkey this morning, you know, it's something that's it's beyond politics and it's beyond diplomacy. This is just a humanitarian disaster. Tell us what's happening in Syria, if you can, as well, because it, that's a lot more complicated given the fact that um, the area where this has been affected is not controlled by the by Damascus, is it? It's it's a, it's an area which has had more than a decade of civil war. Yeah, absolutely. So the Syrian authorities are saying that more than 500 people have died in Syria, both in areas controlled by President Assad and in areas under opposition control. Now, the fact is the quake was felt as far away as Damascus, but it, the areas closest to it in Syria are the areas that are under opposition control. And they're the areas that have been hardest hit over the past 12 years by the civil war. Places like Idlib, you know, the last kind of main opposition controlled area hugely damaged in terms of infrastructure and also it currently has a population of about twice what it was before the war broke out in Syria. That's because loads of people, hundreds of thousands of people from other parts of Syria have fled here as Assad has retaken control of other areas of the country. So there's already, as I mentioned before, a huge humanitarian crisis in this area. There are tents housing hundreds of thousands of people year in year out every time it comes around to winter which you know i think is you know probably should remind people it does get really really cold in this region it's not kind of warm all year round we get snow we get really heavy weather conditions um so already humanitarian crisis but obviously this is just adding an extra layer on top of that Hannah, thank you so much. That was Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. The time is just nudging 12.08 here in London. Here's Laura Kramer with the day's other main news headlines. Thanks, Emma. 
One of the most significant national security trials in the Chinese government's crackdown on Hong Kong has begun. The case concerns the Hong Kong 47, a group of pro-democracy legislators, politicians, activists, and community workers who have been charged with conspiracy to subvert state powers under the national security law. Critics say the city's controversial law is used as a tool to crush dissent. Here in the UK, tens of thousands of nurses and ambulance staff have walked off the job in what unions are calling the biggest strike in the history of the country's public health system. Nurses say their wages have failed to keep up with inflation over the past decade, leaving them unable to pay bills amid spiraling food, fuel and housing costs. And Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he plans to push for bipartisan support on a referendum that aims to set up an Indigenous Consultative Committee in Parliament. The referendum will be held later this year and has been hailed as a landmark move in the process of reconciliation with Indigenous Australians. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Laura. Now let's head to Washington, where the authorities are trying to recover the remains of a giant Chinese balloon which was shot down at the weekend. The White House claims the balloon was sent to spy on key military assets. China says the United States is overreacting. Well, Monocle's correspondent Chris Chermak joins me from Washington. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Emma. Uh, big question, have they found the balloon yet? <laughs> well, they are recovering it over the Atlantic Ocean, uh, as uh, as you as you mentioned, it was shot down over the weekend. Uh, one of the reasons, of course, that they waited uh, for a while was so that the debris would fall into the ocean. So we don't have exact word on what they've recovered yet, but we understand that they are traveling to the ocean. They are at the ocean right now uh, on the borders of the U.S. in order to recover what they can. OK, so we're still trying to work out what on earth was in the Chinese balloon. The Chinese say it was a weather balloon. The Americans say it was a spy balloon. It, it does beg the question, doesn't it? What is it that a balloon can do if, it's, if it is indeed an, an agent and of espionage, what can it do that more traditional and need less visible spy equipment cannot? Well, that's a good question, Emma. I mean, part that's part of the reason I think that China, for example, argues this is an overreaction. But that said, I think this was some kind of message from China uh, to the U.S. to say, you know, anything you can do, we can do as well. The U.S. has spy planes and various things that it will send over China at various times in the past. And yes, China has spy satellites, but from at least my understanding of this, uh, you know, a balloon is something that, for one thing, uh, can be directed a little more easily. It can be stationary over a certain spot. It is lower in orbit, so it can recover. It can recover better images of certain sites um, than a satellite, for example. Can so yes, this is a sign in that sense, if you will, of China saying, "Hey, we are we are in the spy game as well." Um, it's an interesting uh, reaction, though, that's come from Washington. That once the spy balloon or weather balloon or whatever kind of balloon we're talking about here was spotted, then the, then the immediate reaction from the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was to say, "I'm cancelling my visit to China." Is that now being seen as an overreaction or indeed an, an indication that he is listening to calls from the other side, from the Republicans uh, in the US, to get tougher on Beijing? 
You know, I would. I, I don't. It certainly isn't being seen as an overreaction here in the United States, Emma. I think we. You mentioned the Republicans there, but I would say in general, you know, J- Joe Biden and his administration have been very hawkish on China. They've they've kept many of the policies in place from the Trump administration before him, and given the current environment, I would say what you've seen here in the U.S. is. Essentially, you know, a, a good amount of one-upsmanship uh, when it comes to how tough you are on China. That really does make it complicated for a government, for Washington, to have any kind of positive relationship uh, with Beijing. And so, what you saw when it came to Antony Blinken's trip, you know, this was a quiet effort to try and reset relations with. China. Joe Biden and Xi Jinping did meet at the G20 in November in Bali. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, met recently with her Chinese counterpart. So this was going to be uh, a sort of next step, if you will, in that Biden often does emphasize, despite his hawkishness on China, that you know they have to cooperate on certain things, on the climate, on the economy. Um, but I think this balloon saga does just show you how fragile that is. Any sign, um, you know, that 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 something is is going to poison the waters of the trust between the two sides is going to be used here politically by both sides in in that sense. I don't think in that sense, you know, even Biden administration was that comfortable with a visit to China at this point. So they were going to use an opportunity like this, perhaps even, you know, to to, to not have their own their own meeting. Uh, this, of course, also comes just ahead of Joe Biden's State of the Union speech uh, tomorrow here, where you can certainly expect more tough words on China. Indeed, how much has this one balloon or well there's a second balloon and we'll come to that in a minute but how has this one balloon placed the u.s chinese relationship in into reverse um it it is one of those as you say you describe the fragility of it but the but the dramatic way in which the great breaks have been put on have have really been noticeable well, yes, they they have, but uh, as I say, I think it is it is certainly a sign that there was there is no dramatic shift in the other direction, if you will. These things were always going to be tentative between China and the United States. One thing that I'm hearing here in terms of speculation is that uh, you know, and one can only speculate about the Chinese side, but there is some belief here that perhaps they were actually caught off guard by this because. Uh, there was some hope within China, uh, you know, that there would be some positive results from this meeting with Antony Blinken. Xi Jinping has made some noises that he actually wants to continue opening up and have a relationship with the West. He needs it for a revival of his own economy. Um you know, so the the fact that this happened now and the U.S. reaction might have a greater effect, you know, on China and their planning for the relationship than it does in the U.S. Here in the U.S., things have always been very, very skeptical. And this just sort of adds to that. Yes, Republicans now say they're going to investigate Joe Biden uh, when it comes to, you know, his handling of this balloon uh, but that, too, is is a sign just of how much, as I say, this one-upsmanship, if you will, exists in the U.S. that, you know, you have to be as tough as possible on China right now. And briefly, a second balloon spotted over South, South America. The Chinese have said that that is theirs as well. 
Well, yes, that's true. And I should say, we should say for that too, that the, the U.S. has revealed that actually these balloons also uh, flew uh, during the Trump administration a few years ago. Uh, so it's not entirely a surprise to them, which is also interesting, although it should be emphasized that those balloons did not fly fully over continental U.S. They were spotted uh, sort of near the coast, but in U.S. airspace, potentially off of Texas, off of Florida. So this isn't necessarily something new, and perhaps that's, that's also also a sign that China kind of expected that people wouldn't react the way that they are, you know, that this would be a, a natural bit of spying that, that people kind of keep under wraps. And in that sense, I think the fact that it's become this much of a public blow up is just a sign of how fragile this relationship is. Chris Chermack in Washington, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing on Monocle 24. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. And you're back with the briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now, Ukraine's Defence Minister Alexei Reznikov is to be replaced by the chief of the country's military spy agency. His departure comes before an expected fresh onslaught from Russia later this month. But it also follows a series of resignations and sackings following a corruption scandal in January. Well, Alyona Klivko is senior consultant at Atticus Partners and a former regional MP in Ukraine. I'm delighted to say she's on the line. Good afternoon, Alyona. Hello, Emma. So just explain to us who was Alexei Reznikov and, and what his achievements were. In the, He had a couple of months, indeed, before the Russians invaded his country and, and how he has steered the Ukrainian defence policy since then. Um, Alexei Reznikov has been an extremely effective Minister of Defence and still is. Uh, may I note uh, that his resignation has not has yet come into force and we are yet to see whether it will even happen this week. Uh, the talks are ongoing. But he was a very efficient and effective bureaucrat, shall I say. And he was definitely a new person in the Ukrainian defense sector. Um, the defense sector of Ukraine has suffered greatly and was reformed in a major way ever since the first invasion in 2014 happened, because we've discovered that the last two ministers of defense in Ukraine had also dual citizenship and were citizens of the Russian Federation. And we can definitely see the concerted effort that was being taken to undermine Ukraine's defense industry. And so when Resnikov, a completely civilian person, came from the legal background, he was very effective in the sense of um, sorting the bureaucracy in the ministry out, getting rid of all the people who were ineffective and um, were frankly malign actors. And having been appointed in November 2021, I think he's proven to be quite an effective minister in the time of war because we've seen tremendous change uh, to the Ukraine's defense industry. Um, so we should definitely give him due for that. 
Um, just explain to us then, if, it, if he has been, if, if, if all this has happened so smoothly and so well, why is it that he is going and why are questions being asked about the way that certain uh, equipment was pro- procured? There are very scant details, but could you fill us in what the accusations are, the, the thoughts are? Um, yes, so Ukraine has also been going um, through its anti-corruption effort um, as it has started from the ever since the independence from Soviet Union, really, because corruption was so deeply embedded within the whole governing system uh, that we got that as a legacy from the Soviet Union, and that has been quite a struggle. Um, I believe that he's done a good bit, and his first initial input into reforming um, the industry of defense of Ukraine, especially being someone who's not who doesn't have that background so he could take a a look with a fresh pair of eyes in the industry and see um, everyone who was not really doing what they were meant to do within the system. Um, So I think that effort went quite well but of course you can't really vouch for every single person and every single individual in this whole big ministry and we have seen some mishaps and I think partly maybe even uh, due to him Uh, because of course when the system malfunctions you need to make sure to function properly to see where those mishaps are. There were some serious problems with procurement in the Ukrainian army. We've noticed at least two people who were detained are are now under investigation uh, from misappropriation of funds and doing the unjust procurement and and trying to make money obviously i mean we are yet to see the results of the investigation but they try to perhaps make some money on procurements for for the army both um, weapons and provision like food supplies etc for the soldiers so i think he certainly made a statement even last night that he bears the full responsibility for what is happening in the government but we are yet to see what the parliament and the president will decide with regards to him will he stay to fix all of those mistakes or will they bring a fresh blood into the ministry of defense to revamp that effort even greater this this moment though when they're bringing in fresh blood and and revamping defense coincides with very clear signals that Russia is going to try a second onslaught on the 24th of February. How wise is it to start changing leadership in the Ukrainian Defence Ministry when you have something round the corner? I think it would be great to have continuity in this effort, of course, Um, and perhaps be it a week later, it would be a terrible time to uh, change any uh, positions in the Ministry of Defense. But if we're talking about Kirilo Budanov, who's the head of the intelligence, as you rightly noted at the beginning of our conversation, he is also very well informed on all matters, perhaps sometimes even better informed than the current Minister of Defense himself. So if anything, I think it could be a good change just ahead of the second year of war and the revamped effort on part of Russia. Aliona Klivko, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
You're back with a briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now, the cost of living crisis and a war in Europe, you would think that any self-respecting country would do all it could to give its citizens a break. Well, in Denmark, however, there are plans to cancel an annual public holiday in order to make the public purse's ends meet. Well, jo- joining me on the line is Zander Brett, who's a journalist who specialises in covering Scandinavia. Hello, Zander. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, so just tell us, what's, what's the, 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 uh, the plan? Why do they want to get rid of this uh, holiday? Well, Denmark needs to meet a NATO target of spending. It's about 2% that they need um, to meet, and they're quite a long way off. They need to get there uh, by 2030, 2033. Um, so the idea of this is to get rid of the holiday and to try and um, make up that that uh, shortfall really um just explain to us you know, how popular this is this has been though because um people have taken to the streets in protest at this that's right yeah, about fifty thousand people in copenhagen protesting yesterday uh, organized by the trade union it's been very unpopular and i think one of the the largest polls ever conducted in denmark um general public signed about for four four hundred six six thousand i think uh, last count, 460,726. There you are. That's the precise figure as it stands at the moment. Uh, the Danish population is only 5.9 million. So that's about one in 19, one in 20 people uh, who have actively said they want to, to stop this from going ahead. What is the reason for them, them protesting other than the fact that you know a, a public holiday is a deserved moment when a, when a nation can rest? Well, that that is it exactly. That is it, and and the trade unions obviously been pushing the fact that it's it's a rest for workers, and and that's what people want. And, and I think a lot of people just don't buy the argument that it's somehow going to make up the the shortfall because uh, economic uh, you know economic experts have come out and said uh, they really don't see how just removing one public holiday is going to make uh, any difference in that regard. And the fact is, is the government is moving forward by three years, a goal of meeting their defence spending target of 2% of GDP. Obviously, it needs four and a half billion Danish crowns to get this done. I mean, is there any sense that the abolition of one day, um, one day's holiday will actually meet this shortfall? Common sense suggests that it might actually be a bit of a stretch. Uh, definitely, I think that would be putting it mildly. Yes, yeah, there is, there is uh, no real support that for 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 that um, for that argument. Uh, obviously, Meta Frederiksen, she's well, she's been in the position since twenty nineteen. She's just had an election, though, so she's in a new coalition. Um, it seems like a strange priority for her, and given that it's been quite unpopular, there've been mutterings about this before, uh, way back when um, in seventeen seventy one, it survived a reform. There was a huge reform by uh, Prime Minister then, and it survived that. And it's been mutterings ever since then. So that's about about four hundred years of musterings that this is going to happen. Uh, it finally has happened just as she's won an election, has entered into a coalition agreement. So why this is a priority, uh, well, you'd have to ask Meta Fredrickson. I mean, it's an interesting thing that you point out there, that people have been wrangling over this particular holiday for several centuries. Yeah, well, I think it's to do with the gradual sort of dechristianization, if you want to put it that way, of Denmark. Uh, Denmark is still a Christian country and about 75% of people belong to the national church and it is voluntary to join the national church. However, uh, church attendance is about two percent uh, of of, um, of that membership, so uh, it it is no longer seen as you know the religious argument doesn't really have any currency at the moment uh, because Denmark is is falling away from from the church and from those traditional Christian holidays. Zander, how likely is the government to have its way here, or will it take a you know take a look at the tens of thousands of people on the streets and realise that it should maybe alter its plans? Uh, yes, I think it's going to give up sooner rather than later. Uh, it's just a bit pointless, to be honest. Uh, people, people, 
are happy to to support that defence spend, uh, spending. Denmark had an opt out for many years with the EU and their defence force. They changed that last year. So through and that was about sixty six percent of people in favour of that. The turnout was quite low, um, but people were very happy to support obviously the war in Ukraine and and general uh, NATO membership going across the. Denmark is already a member of NATO, but Sweden and Finland, of course, tried to join. Denmark's joined the European Defence Fund. So there is there is an agreement that uh, Denmark should be doing its bit um, in NATO and should be spending on defence. But uh, they just don't see that this is this is the way to do it. And um, they're quite cross about it. In, in, a, gro- in a broader context, the, the Denmark and its, um, you know, it, its involvement or the fact that as part of the European Union, it has this, you know, we have the Russian invasion of Ukraine so close. Um, Reasonably close neighbours, Finland and Sweden, are trying to join NATO. Where does did Denmark fit sit with all this at the moment? It's the same as Finland and Sweden. They they want to do more. They're aware that Russia. Well, Russia isn't a direct neighbour of Denmark, but it is of, of the region. And um, Danish submarines have entered Swedish waters in the past. So, and obviously Sweden is right next door. So there is there is this general Nordic push to 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 uh, increase defence spending to join NATO if they're not already members and. To, to continue that effort to support Ukraine. Sandra Brett, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. That's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Marcus Hippie. And our researcher was Andre Nikolai Parmintu and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow and at 1800 London time, Andrew Muller will be behind the microphone to bring you tonight's episode of The Daily. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.